Scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Let's share in God's good word together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Every sermon around here, we try to do three things. We try to tell you the what, and then we try to tell you the so what, and then your action step is the now what. The what today is that relationships are the most important thing in your life. Relationships are the most important thing in your life. The so what is that you stink at it. Everybody does. I haven't met anybody who's on top of all their relationships. And the now what is we've got some work to do. So we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, I like to think on positive things. And when I was a little boy, I grew up with a football in my hand. And I would, I mean, if it was a ball, I had it. Baseball, basketball, football, but particularly football. I loved football. And one of the reasons I love football is that my dad was my football coach, my flag football. And, and so even, even till the day he died, he had a little, um, a little trophy. We got second place that year, and he was the coach. And he, he carried that with him on his nightstand for his entire life. And so we moved from flag football, though, of course, to real football. And there I am on the end. I'm number 40. And in case um, you can't tell, I used to have curly hair, so I'll give you a better shot there. Uh, I was something to behold. It was tough. It was tough. And, and it wasn't just flag football. It wasn't just one team. This was in Bartlesville. It didn't matter where we lived. I would find a football team, whether it was the Steelers or the Rams. I'm still on the end. Apparently, I'm always on the end. Um, and uh, Mr. Mighty 52, yeah. And so um, I did score a touchdown once. Although it was preseason, so I'm not sure it counts. But I did. I did. Now, the reason I tell you about this is that probably one of, if not my fondest memories, is in Bartlesville, the Parsonage was about two blocks from College High High School. And every Friday night that there was a home game, you would start to hear the drums. You'd start to hear the band. You'd start to hear the theme song. And I would get so excited. We're going to go. We're going to go. We're going to go. And I was like, can we go? Can we go? And, and my mom was waiting. Not yet. She was making popcorn that we could sneak in to the, the game. Because you don't want to pay a dollar for popcorn. That's, you know, you know, not frugal. And so, you know, we get our snacks. We get the whole thing. We bundle up. We start walking. And it gets closer and closer. And I was enthralled. And, and there was... College High at the time, before they became the Bruins, it was just amazing. And as a little guy, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, I mean, that's your world. We would go underneath the stands and we would p- pretend that we were the high schoolers. And we were tough. And I remember, uh, as a preacher's kid, some of you don't know this, but as a preacher's kid, the church is your second home. You know every closet, 
every attic, every room, every everything. And so your parents do their work, and you're somewhere on the campus. That's how it is with preacher's kids. Not today, but that's how it, that's how it was for me. And I remember I was down in the basement, and I was waiting on Dad to get out of some sort of meeting or whatever. And I was, I was downstairs in the youth room, and I was playing a game. I had this tap on my shoulder, and my, I heard my dad's voice. I was like, oh, yeah, Dad? He said, I want to introduce you to someone. It was the quarterback of the high school football team. He went to our church, and my dad had asked him if he would come down and introduce himself. It rocked my world. I mean, I was starstruck. I couldn't even talk. I was like, you know, that kind of a deal. Your relationships from the time you're a child up until the time you pass, it's the most important thing in your world. And sometimes it's just so beautiful, it's it's beyond words. Now, I've been reading this book by David Brooks. Many of you know I'm a a fan of his. He writes for the New York Times. He's on the PBS NewsHour. And and this is is the book that he has out now, How to Know a Person, How to Really Know a Person. He says, you know, when it comes to relationships, we, we humans, we don't do this well. You know, things like the real act of, say, building a friendship or creating a community. It involves performing a series of very small, concrete social actions over and over and over again, where you can disagree with someone without poisoning the relationship, where you can actually reveal vulnerability at an appropriate pace and not pay for it with your life. It, it, It takes things like being a good listener. If someone were to describe you, would they say that you're a good listener? Knowing how to end a conversation gracefully, that can be hard. Some of you are talkers, right? I mean, it can be hard to, how do you exit graciously? Knowing how to ask for forgiveness, knowing how to offer forgiveness, knowing how to let someone down without breaking their heart, knowing how to sit with someone who's suffering. If you don't know how to do that yet, Pastor Tim's going to have a whole course on that. Knowing how to host a gathering where everyone feels welcome, where everyone feels embraced. You don't know how to do that, see Chantel, she's great at it. Hopefully that's your experience here, that you, when you walk in, you feel embraced, you feel welcomed, that there's no one outside the reach and love of God through his people. And then maybe hardest of all, particularly in election season, knowing how to see something from another's point of view. These are some of the most important skills in life, he writes. Most important skills a human being can possess, and yet we don't teach them in school. Some days it seems like we have intentionally built a society that gives people little guidance on how to perform the most important activities of life. And as a result, a lot of us are lonely and lack deep friendships. More now than in maybe 100 years. You see, human beings long to have another person look into their face with loving respect and acceptance. Is that true for you? Sure it is. Read it with me. Human beings long to have another person look into their face with loving respect and acceptance. Yet, our institutions have focused more and more on preparing people for their careers, but not on the skills of being considerate toward the person next to you. And as a country, we're paying the price. So we are in our second week of love and happiness, finding it, keeping it. We're going to dive in closer now to how to live a happier life. You know, you can't chase happiness. We talked about that last week. But you can get happier. You can from wherever you are. And that has to do almost exclusively with your relationships. Anything else can change in your life. But if your relationships are rock solid, 
you can live through it and sometimes actually enjoy it. So last week, just to catch you up if, if you haven't seen that one yet or weren't here last week, first of all, when we talk about love and happiness, love is more than an emotion. Will you say that with me? Love is more than an emotion, right? So to love is to act intentionally for the betterment of others. Willing the good is the way Dallas Willard puts it. Willing the good for the one who is loved. So we do the next right thing, the next best thing in every situation. That's what love looks like. That's what Jesus did. That's what he modeled. Wherever he was, he did the next right thing, the most loving thing possible. And, and so last week we, we talked about this. One of the reasons we struggle with this is we, we really do confuse love and lust because we really just have sort of the one word. And so we may say that we love chocolate cake, but we don't. Rather, we want to eat it, don't we? We don't desire the best for the cake, right? We desire for our eating. So that desire is not love. It's just desire. And, of course, you know this. Desire leads to more desire. When it comes to love, you can give without loving. You can give transactionally. You can give with an expectation of return. You can give in manipulation. But you cannot love without giving of your time, your attention, your resources. And any of you all have family, you know this to be true. If, if you look at your uh, checkbook and your calendar, you know what you love. Whoever you spend the most money on is probably who you love most. I mean, that's just the, kind of the way it rolls. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. We should invest in the things that are most important in life. But when it comes to God, it doesn't work that way. Before you or I did anything good or bad, God loved us infinitely, unconditionally, no strings attached. There is nothing. Do you know this? There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or love you less. His character itself is love. And we know this from 1 John. It says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, uh, the word there is agapateo, the, the, the people who uh, receive and act in God's love. They are the beloved of God. Since God loves us so much, we also ought to agape one another, love in the way that God loves, do the best for others. And so when it comes to happiness, right, so that's love on happiness side, it's not a destination, right? And the more you chase it, the more miserable you become. Any of y'all ever tried to chase happiness? If you're a man, you know this. Have you ever chased a girl that's not interested? It's miserable. It's miserable. And, and so, again, to make some distinction here, pleasure is about want, but happiness is about freedom from want. So when that delicious, luscious chocolate cake comes into your life, you can take it or not take it. It doesn't make you any difference. If somebody else who's hungry that needs that cake, you're like, have it. Because happiness, now you have the choice. By the power of God, you have the choice to eat it, not eat it. If, if your host is going to be offended if you don't eat it, eat it. If you're diabetic, don't eat it. Unless you got some insulin on you. Right? I mean, it depends on your situation. And so we know that the four areas of life that are essential to happiness, your family, of course, your friends, your work, and your faith. These things together make up your life of whether you are enjoying your life or not. And so one of the things we talked about last week, uh, which sits right along what we're going to talk about this week, is that practicing gratitude, thankfulness, is the strongest predictor of satisfaction of life. I, I spent an entire two weeks basically learning this um, from Dr. Hart. And here's the thing. If you look to the scriptures, what you'll find is every time God tells us to do something, it's not because God needs it. It's because we do. It's for our good. 
I mean, God said to give thanks and praise over and over again. And, and people didn't know this, but it's because it's good for you. God says to love God. Why? Because it's good for you. God says to love others. Why? Because it's good for you. It's the best for you. So this week, we're going to dive deeper into love. And love was central for Jesus in the early church. It's what they were known for. When other people ran away from disease, Christians ran towards it and cared for people, even if it cost them their lives. When other people were hungry and they shunned them, Christians welcomed them in their homes and fed them. They pooled their resources, and anybody who was hungry had enough to eat. Other people would actually put particularly girls outside to die because they didn't see them as a societal help at that time in Roman culture. And Christians would take them in. Created basically um, the first orphanages, the first Red Cross, the first hospitals. Um, If you've been with me a long time, you know this. I mean, try to think in Oklahoma City of a hospital that is not based out of a Christian organization. Right? Where'd you have your babies? Baptist, right? Or Mercy, Catholic, or used to be Deaconess, right? Free will, uh, free Methodists. I mean, you just go on and on and on. Right. Or, you know, in New York, you have like Mount Sinai. Right. In a Jewish community. All of these are faith based things. Why? Because our role is to bring healing to the world, to bring heaven to earth. Jesus says in John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another, that you do best for one another, that you heal one another, that you're part of what God's doing as I have loved you sacrificially. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. Say it with me. If. If you do what I command you. That's how we know if you love God, if you're doing God's stuff, if you're loving others. So Jesus says it's really simple, friends. All of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the law, comes down to two things. Love God, love others. That's it. Now, pretty simple, but my hunch is you are struggling with that as much as I am. Because it's hard. It can be hard to give and give and give and not know what you're going to get in return. And it's even harder if you've had bad experiences growing up. Dr. Grail was was helping me um, with this sermon earlier. And one of the things that that I just have to own is that uh, I think in some way every person in the room, particularly on a day that's, you know, zero degrees, is here because you're hurting in some way. You you don't come here just to come here. You, You come here looking for hope. And for comfort and for answers and, and how to actually live into a life. How do you get out of your grief or get on top of something that is absolutely beyond your capacity? To invite God into your life again to say, help me. Be my savior. Help me. And that's what Jesus came to do to help us. But, but until we receive the power of God in our life, until we learn how to live in his love, we will have a difficult time making good choices. Choices that actually help us. Because we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are. We all have a lens. And so, um, by the way, this, we'll get into this later, but not in this sermon, but later. You do know that you are not responsible for how anyone feels. And sometimes children are told that you made mom unhappy. They don't have that power. Mom needs to work on herself. Or dad say, oh, you're going to make dad angry. Nobody has that capacity. Dad has to work on his anger. And if you tell a child that they have that kind of power, you will wreck them. 
for the way they see themselves in the future. Because then they, they look for a mate and they think, oh, I can't actually be myself because they're going to be angry or they're going to be sad or they're going to be hurt or, they're gonna, or I'm going to try and try and try to make them happy and I can't because it's not within our power. We have to, we have to start to learn these things so that the world can become a kinder place. Because the lonelier we get, the meaner we get. The world gets to be a scary place. So the, the teachers of the law, they come to Jesus and they say, which one's the greatest? And Jesus says, you know this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, the Shema. They knew that. This is the greatest first commandment. They're like, yeah, we get it. But then he adds this. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, all of it. So this love, it's an attitude. It's a habit. It's a practice. It's a way of being in the world, a way of moving in the world, of showing up for people. One of the most beautiful words, I think, for how love works in the world uh, is, is what I think of as a musical term, is accompaniment. Right? Those of you who know music, you know that a good accompanist makes you shine. Right? You go a little too fast, they're right with you. Nobody knows. You go too slow, they're right with you. If it's out of your range, they bring it down. <laughs> a good accompanist can change your life. And if you're a good accompanist, you can change others' lives. By just being there, just walking with them, listening, being attentive. So, what does this love look like that Jesus modeled? And actually that he requires. Well, it looks like these things. Attention, that's the first. It's always attention first. If you don't see someone, you can't love them. Compassion, healing, sharing hope, mercy. Say this one with me. Forgiveness, right? Because if you don't have forgiveness, you don't have any relationships. That's just it. And giving up what? Our agenda and laying down our demands. Because if you have an agenda other people have to get on, you're going to be miserable. And you have demands that you're making of your spouse or your children. You've got to do this. Just get ready for a whooping. Because sometimes they will and sometimes they won't. And then we have this other thing that the world piles on top of us. And that is you have all these unreasonable expectations of you. And I, I, I look at our young couples today, and I, I mean, I just don't know how you're surviving. I mean, you're, you're supposed to get up before dawn, have everything your kids need ready for them, and then get them to school or to wherever their care is. And then you're supposed to work a full day, and you're supposed to come home, and you're supposed to be there for your spouse and be there for your kids. And, and keep working, by the way, because you're still getting emails at 8, 9, 9 10 o'clock at night, many of you, because you're in management. And then you're supposed to have that figured out before the next morning. And your mind never shuts down. Your mind never rests. And then you wonder why you're sick or why you're exhausted or why you're burnt out or why you want to retire tomorrow. Because that's not how we're made. You're not made for that. And what that, what that pushes us to is hurry, hurry sickness. And it's all over us. You know, when you're trying to get your kid in the car seat faster, you're like, oh, let's make it a game. We're going to get it quick. You know, and everything's a hurry. That's not a God. Why? Because you can't love in a hurry. You just can't. It doesn't work. And your kids know this. Your spouse knows this. Your parents know this. And we have a colleague here in in Oklahoma that wrote a great new book, just came out. and, And she writes it this way. Dr. Robinson says, Jesus' way is simply about learning to love and getting rid of a lot of stuff that keeps us from doing that well. You just have to shed stuff 
I have a mentor that tells me, Mark, every time you add something, you have to put away two. Because something new takes longer to learn. And so if you're even going to be even, you have to, if you're going to take on a new responsibility, you've got to drop two others. Just to stay even in your life. So this first act of love is attention. Attention. Looking someone in the eye. Letting them know that you're there for them. Jesus was amazing at this. Even when it was super difficult. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is when Jesus is heading to the cross. I know you're like, man, it's kind of dark. Well, just hold on. Jesus has done his ministry in Galilee. He comes all the way down to Jericho. He's about to take that huge trek up to Jerusalem, a huge uh, elevation change. And the Jericho Road is dangerous, as you might imagine, right? I mean, Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan on the Jericho Road. It was a dangerous place. The Scripture says they came to Jericho in the Gospel of Mark. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho to go up to Jerusalem, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, Right? There's this huge group going, there's a huge parade, and there's this blind beggar sitting by the roadside. Now, when he hears it's Jesus and others, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Which was quite a statement because that could get you killed. Because if Jesus is the son of David, that means Herod is not. So Jesus, hearing that, he, he stops. He stops the whole thing. And he looks around, he says to his disciples, call him here. Like, we need to get on. He's like, nope, call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. Jesus is calling you. And by the way, friends, Jesus is calling you. He sees your need. He hears you, even if nobody else does. He stops for you, even if nobody else does. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, I want to see. Teacher, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Friends, the great challenge of our faith is to pay attention and to see people the way see Jesus saw people. To slow our lives enough to hear the call, to see the need. And to just, you know, own the fact that we're, we just are going too fast to enjoy life. In his book, David Brooks says, human beings need recognition as much as they need food and water. People need to be seen as much as they need food and water. And there are study after study after study after study, some of them just heartbreaking. And so if you were paying attention earlier in the year, uh, the Surgeon General came out with all kinds of stats. Uh, this one was, it's not in your sermon notes, but I just want to give you these for free, right? I mean, catch this. Lacking social connection can increase the risk of premature death as much as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. You would think we would work harder on our relationships, right? The percentage of Americans who said they have no close friends four times in 10 years from 1990 to 20 or 20, whatever long that is, you math people, 1990 to 2020, right? 30 years, quadrupled, right? And in 2013, Americans spent six and a half hours per week with friends. And by, you know, four years ago, it had dropped to 38% only by 38% to only four hours a week. So the very thing that used to bring us joy and happiness and we could count on community and social interactions, we're getting worse at it, not better. And I don't know if it's connected or not, but our um, life expectancy is also dropping. I think they may be connected. Now, in the longest research study ever done at Harvard, started back in 1938, it had 724 young men. At the time, Harvard only had men at school there. 
And, and they would gather them and they would follow them through their lives and they would take their blood every other year and they would take DNA samples and they would do brain scans. And 25 of these guys actually donated their brains so they could study it after their death. It is the, by far the longest running in-depth study on happiness and with more than 1,300 participants now because it was them and then their kids, some of their grandkids. Uh, and over 85 years, it's the same thing we've been talking about. Read it with me. Strong relationships are what make for a happy life more than wealth, IQ, or social class. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter what neighborhood you're in. Your relationships by far outpace all of them. I'm just trying to help you. Uh, A therapist um, and author, Mary Pfeiffer, says, to be able to understand people and be present for them in their experience, it's the most important thing in the world. To be able to show up for your kids, show up for your spouse, show up for your parents, your aging parents, your uncles and your aunts. When you you have people die, I mean, I actually know family now where people are getting married. People don't show up. People are having funerals. People aren't showing up. They're busy with their own career. You know, they, they live, you know, eight hours away, so, you know, we can't make it. That's crazy. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to wake you up. You think those folks are coming to your funeral at that point? No, you don't want to die alone. Friends, every time you see anyone, you're looking at a person that Jesus is willing to die for. Every person you ever see, Jesus loved enough to die for. We can at least pay attention. We are to love whether we feel it or not, whether it's convenient or not. Love is best revealed in the way we live in community. That's why we say here we're an outpost of heaven. And people are watching us. How you act here, right? Here, the sunscreen in the parking lot, out in the world. That's who we are. That's heaven to people. That's Christianity to people. It matters. Now, before you think I'm just talking about, you know, uh, marriages, and we'll, we'll go in deeper next week on that, on those particular kinds of relationships. They come in lots of forms, don't they? You got friends. You got teammates. You got classmates. You've got colleagues, roommates, mentors. All of these are important. You've got siblings, parents, grandparents, children, right? And then, of course, you also have romantic partners and spouses. All of that. They all matter. David Brooks says, I've come to believe that the quality of our lives and the health of our society depends to a large degree on how well we treat each other in the minute interactions of daily life. Holding the door for someone. Saying thank you. Writing a thank you note, saying please, saying you're welcome, treating waiters with respect, wait staff with respect, tipping well, greater than the, the average person because we love them, we see them as Jesus sees them. We know that they have that job, they're, they're working their butts off, right? We're not, we're not trying to save two bucks, right, for our vacation, our second vacation of the year, whatever it is, right? We're people of blessing. We're, we're not miserly. And here's the thing that I was referring to earlier, and that is that we don't have to be managed by our feelings or by what happens to us. We don't. Now, some of us are, but we don't have to. And, and, and what, what we find is that when something happens to you, whether it's early in childhood or, or today or later, what, what we find is that that doesn't actually make us respond in a certain way. What it does is it makes us think that we're predicting what's going to happen next. And sometimes when something happens to us, we think we know what's going to happen next because of what happened to us last time. But you see how that's false thinking? So someone says, I'm upset with you. You think I'm going to lose my job. 
The person talking to you isn't trying to fire you. They're trying to help you. They're trying to move you up to management. But if you still think you're going to lose your job because that's what you learned the first time, you're not going to receive that well and you're never going into management. See how this works? So when something happens to you, it's not a predictor of what you do. It's a predictor of what you're going to think is going to happen. Super important that you get that right. Psychoanalysis and neuropsychology will show that to you if you want to dive into that. It's pretty interesting. It was on Hidden Brain last week. Right? So Arthur Brooks, no relation to David Brooks, um, puts it this way. He, he works in happiness all the time. That's his, his job. He says, so because this is true and other things are true, he says, act the way you want, not the way you feel. Right? So you act the way you want. Act what you want to happen, not the way you feel about it. Because it really doesn't matter how you feel about it. You're going to have to work that out. So act the way you want. You'd be amazed at how your life changes. Why? Because you have the power to choose how you respond. You don't have the power to choose what happens to you. Life happens to all of us. It just does. But you do have the power to choose how you respond. And the more you know yourself, the better choices you can make. And, and the, the least you know yourself, the more dangerous your life becomes. The harder your life becomes. The more negative your life becomes. Because it just it goes in the same pattern. Many of you all know that I'm a big fan of Andy Stanley. If he ever stops and sees me, I'm going to just like pass out. Um, <laughs> But he has such a way with words. He, he can take this whole sermon and kind of boil it down to this. He says, we are only as happy as our core relationships are happy. And you know this to be true. Everything can be going perfectly at work. But if your marriage is falling apart, you're having a bad day. It's just the way it is. The number one predictor of a long life is the number of positive social connections you have. I mean, it actually determines how long you live. How many friends do you have? And, and if, if you can't really think of any, get some. Work on it. I mean, I know it's a little weird, but you can, will you be my friend? I mean, like, let's, go, let's go get a Coke, something, you know? And, oh, by the way, if you're a dude, it probably means grilling meat. <laughs> or something like that. You can't just talk. It's weird. Like, I'm talking to you. Like, don't do that. Get some meat. We'll barbecue. Then we can talk. It's okay. <laughs> so you got to have something to do. Dr. King, um, since it is this weekend celebrating his birth and life and legacy, he, he, just, he says it like this. He says, life's most persistent, urgent question, friends, is what are you doing for others? And as you do things for others, you'd be amazed at how many friends you get, connections you make. And so you may ask yourself, well, okay, you're supposed to tell me how to get happier. Okay, here it is. How do I become a better person? How do I have a happier life? Anybody know? Scientifically proven. You want to become a better person? You want to have a happier life? Treat others better. It's that simple. It's that simple. And that's why Jesus says to do it. One, because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. But really, if you treat others better, your life gets better. It just does. But it's going to take practice. You're going to have to work at it. Like anything else, you've got to practice at it. It takes a lifetime of practice to become the loving person we're created to be. It takes our whole life. The earliest Christians understood this. And, and, and you see this, I mean, wouldn't you say that your parents, most of the time, were a lot more fun as grandparents? Takes time. Takes time. And God bless all you first children out there. Oh, my goodness. Right? The, the baby has a lot better, you know, deal most of the time. 
We are created for love, and it takes a lifetime of practice. We are created to love. We are created to become love. To be perfect as God is perfect is simply to love deeply and fully. When Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, he's saying, love well. As I've shown you to love well. But here's the thing. You can't love well if you don't practice. You just can't. Just like anything else. And then, before you say, well, I'm not ready to have this big, huge conversation that I know I need to have, that's okay. You're probably not ready. Because if you don't talk about the little things on a regular basis, it's hard to talk about the big things. It just is. I mean, I hope none of you walked up to somebody, first time you want to go, you want to get married? I mean, don't do that. It's weird. Right? Little, little conversations. Lots of them. So here's your action step. So the what? Relationships are super important. So what? We're not very good at it. Now what? I want you to try this this week. And if it works for you, I hope you'll continue to do it. When you are within eye contact of someone, look at them. Smile. Say hi. Keep going. Don't ask them to marry you. That's weird. (laughs) But seriously, this happens to you all the time. You're walking somewhere. You're going in. You're in a hurry. They're in a hurry, whatever. And you just stop. You you make eye contact. You're like, hey. And by the way, this will freak people out. If people are coming at you and you just go, it makes their day. How easy is that? It costs you, what, two seconds? It it changed the world. So I invite you to try this with me. Will you try this with me? If you will try this with me, raise your hand. Try this with me. Some of you are like, I'm not doing that. But it's okay. It's okay. Maybe next week. So um, I invite you to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us because it's for our good and the good of the world. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.